Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this week's Failed Critics Podcast. I'm Steve Norman and I'm joined by Owen Hughes. Hello, Steve Norman. Hello. Hello. And nobody else is joining us this week. Nope, just you and me. No, just me. Yeah, just the two of us uh, talking this week about Blade Runner 2049 uh, when we do our new releases um, as that is out the sequel to Blade Runner obviously and much hyped and looked forward to by yes, many the 2049th sequel to Blade Runner yes yes have you seen all of the the previous 2048 Blade it feels Runners? like I have Owen feels like it, it have because there's it, so many it, yeah it feels like I have yes because it was nearly three hours long <laughs> uh, I thought you were gonna say because there are so many different versions of the original there's that as well. Mm. There's there's certainly that as well. Um, but you what you rewatched the original recently, didn't you? And you watched the yes. theatrical cut. Yes, the 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 cut, the theatrical cut, which is the one that was uh, readily available on Sky Go. Yeah. So there's two. There's basically only really two versions you ever need to bother with, the theatrical cut, and you can differentiate them by this sort of method. The ori- the, the original theatrical cut has uh, narration by Harrison Ford as Deckard. The final cut, which is the best version, the only other ver- the only version you really need to bother with, and um, that doesn't have narration, but it has the unicorn in it. So that's kind of... We'll, we'll probably talk about all this later, I'm sure. As always, when there's just two of us, we're not bothering doing a quiz. Nope. Because we never do when it's just two of us. But we are doing some news. Um, a few things, good, yeah. yeah some, some things to touch on that's happened um, mostly in the last couple of days. Uh, the first of which is that the latest trailer for Star Wars The Last Jedi has dropped. Because trailers only drop now. They drop or they land. They drop. It's landed. If you drop something, it has to land. Yeah, that's the, that's the a, rules of physics. Rules of gravity, yeah. I believe. So, yes, Owen, um, mm-hmm. as you don't like Star Wars, why don't you tell us what you thought of it first, and then I'll tell everyone what they should think about it. It's just, it's just Star Wars, isn't it? I mean, Yeah, I, it is like, really. There's nothing more <laughs> to say. It is just Star Wars. I just watched it and thought, it just looks more of the same. Some of the scenes, yeah. like, the, or, well, I don't know if you can call them scenes in the trailer. Some of the clips that were in the trailer just almost look like for, like, of older Star Wars films. Stuff I've seen exactly the same of yeah, before. But more more but, nostalgia, Steve. More nostalgia. Yeah. Well, maybe, remember, maybe. remember Star Wars. Remember. Yeah. 
Yeah. Mm. But maybe mm. they should try something different with Star Wars trailers because Star Wars fans are going to go and see it. You could put two minutes of Jabba the Hutt's ass on the trailer and they would still go and see it. So maybe you need to try. They should try and do something different with Star Wars trailers to get people who either don't know Star Wars or don't like Star Wars to go and see it. Mm. Because let's be honest, if you like Star Wars, it doesn't matter what's on that trailer. You're going to go and watch the film, aren't you? Yeah. Maybe they should do what uh, a film I watched this week called Loving Vincent did and just hand paint every individual frame of a Star Wars film. Have you heard about this, Loving Vincent? No. By the way. But you're okay. talking about it later, aren't you? I'm talking about it later, yeah. But I just thought it was a, it was incredible. Like as a feat of uh, animation. Hand painting every frame. Hand painting it in oils. And uh, Anyway, yeah. So if they did that to Star Wars, I would be more excited about Star Wars film. Mm. That would look incredible. Um, but yeah, I think in the trailer they've, they've pretended to give a lot away, but there's a lot of misdirection there. I think you yeah. know, they're, they're leading you to believe certain things are going to happen when they're not, which is a slight departure from the, the trailers for Force Awakens and Rogue One because they were deliberately ambiguous and deliberately didn't give much away on the plot, which is very well received in a time where trailers for films quite often give absolutely everything away and you can feel like you've seen the whole film in two and a half minutes. Mm. So I think this has kind of done the same. You don't, you don't you watch a trailer and you don't really know what's going to happen. There's a lot up in the air yeah I guess well we, one thing we did see was um, Carrie Fisher and we know it, yeah. this is her last film yeah in the start well I mean is it her last film it might, I mean, it's definitely her last appearance well in I mean Star she let's this, this be honest she wasn't doing a great deal in terms of film when Force Awakens came around was she no but she did um, she did a, a TV series recently okay was it Catastrophe that she was in um but uh, yeah, so she's she's been doing things, um, but yeah, de- this is um, definitely her last appearance in Star Wars because they've also said, as you pointed out before we started recording, um, they're not going to Peter Cushing her. She's not no. coming back as a, a CG. Um, no, um, I mean this isn't a spoiler for the Last Jedi in any way. It just suggests to me that they will kill her off somehow, and maybe that was planned even before Carrie Fisher died away but died away passed away um it just makes me think that the the, the it was planned to kill off uh leia anyway because or, or maybe they've done it retrospectively because how do you explain her absence in the final film of the, of the trilogy if she, if she's not dead Mag- magic it's star wars steve it doesn't have, not to have magic, magic in star wars oh that's magic really it's not Force. magic it's not magic. Oh, though, the force it? was explained, wasn't it? Isn't this t- something it's to do with midichlorians? Yeah, tiny little it's... creature things. Right? Is that right? They're like germs, all these things. They're like bacteria, yeah. and they live in your body. And everyone's got a bit of the force, but some people have got more of it than others. And and that's how you Jedi. Magic. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. When when. George Lucas dies, they're going to redo the prequels and none of that will count anymore. <laughs> yeah. Possibly. I, yeah, I mean, it is it is um, an interesting thing that, that you're right, that what what else can they do with it, though? You know? Yeah, they can't, they can't, unless they were to, to kill off the character that is her son, which is Ben, Kylo Ren, 
mm-hmm. Lester would to kill him off in this film, and then she, you know, she's got no now her son is dead. She's got no more interest in global politics and yeah. saving the galaxy, and she just goes off and retires quietly. Unless that was to happen, you know, you she can't just disappear altogether. You have to have some sensible way of explaining where she's gone, and I don't think you can. Yeah. Although, I mean, from what I gather and what we've, again, talked about before we started recording, um, she filmed all of her scenes before she died anyway, right? So, I believe so, yes. So, I mean, maybe the intention all along was that she dies in this film and it's a turning point uh, yeah. because of other characters that we've seen yes. disappear over the past two films. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, um, will it be emotional for you? Do you think it'll be emotional if they kill her off? Um, depends how it's done, but I mean, she's a big part of Star Wars. She's one of the, yeah. you know the iconic characters. Um, yeah, if she's hit hit by a rocket, would that upset you? She dies off screen. Dies sort of off one of those script. like you know missiles heading towards the ship that she's on. Suddenly, her face gets lighter and lighter and lighter, and then uh, closes her eyes. Off screen, or, boom. or you kind of just see a rocket go towards her ship, and then later on, Luke gets like a space telegram going, "Your sister's dead." Yeah, yeah. Remember when you kissed her? That was weird. <laughs> just to rub it in. Yeah. If, he, if that was if that was this world, no, that would just be on his obituary when he died, or when she died. <laughs> what you kissed her brother? What? Yeah. Yeah. Like um, all those kind of things. You don't escape that in tabloids. They have like files and files, like massive reams of stuff about people. And most of them have their obituaries already written. And they just add stuff when they die. So, you know, it's never forgotten. It would be Yeah, that would be remembered forever. That would come back to haunt her. Once once kissed your brother. Mm -hmm. Like proper snogged him. Space princess who led the Rebel Alliance and snogged her brother back in the seventies. Yeah. Yeah. Once wore a bikini round a big slug. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know where we're going with this. No, I don't I'm, know. I think I we're want, just rambling now. So, but I want to. I want to watch Star Wars. I'm not going to watch all uh. eight <laughs> films in a row. I might. No, I won't. I've done it once. You didn't. Um, you didn't do it once. You, you didn't make no, it through them once. I almost did it. Maybe I'll do it properly this time. And that's the worst thing because now you know you've made seven. You need to do eight. That's that's it. Maybe I'll do it properly this time and watch all eight Star Wars films and then just go straight to watch The Force Awakens afterwards. Yeah, because, I mean, otherwise it's just going to get more and more. You're going to end I mean, up having to watch, like, nine yeah. in a row and, and it's going to be ten in a row. And I've got a sin- I've got an unlimited card, so technically if I fall asleep in the screening, I don't <laughs> actually lose out on anything. Because yeah. I can just keep... Book- I've I've been to the cinema twice in the last two days to watch films, and each time I've used both mine and my girlfriend's unlimited card, so I don't have to sit next to anyone. Yeah, everyone does that. And I will keep doing that. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to sit next to people. No, no. And it's annoying though, isn't it? Because you can't book just like if you leave just one seat. Like say there's say there's four seats at the end of a row, and there's two people sat on seats five and six. You can't just book seats two and three because no. you leave one seat either side. It's too much of a risk. Yeah. I, I always book the, the seat again, the aisle seat or the wall seat and the one next to it. Yeah. And then... Yeah. I yeah. Go, sometimes go right to the back. Yeah. You know, if I want to just have a shifty wank at the... No, that's a joke. I didn't do that. 
but I do. Yeah, I'm sure you do. Yeah, depends depends what's on. Wasn't yeah. much in Blade Runner. I could. Um, <laughs> no. Uh, anyway, segueing nice, segueing nicely from us us wanking. Uh, Harvey Weinstein's in a bit of trouble. <laughs> He's in a bit of trouble. He's yeah, it was some... a, nice, a nice segue, wasn't it? One of the things I he mean, was accused of doing, one of the things he's alleged to have done, is was, just was wanking at the back of the cinema. It was, but no, it was literally in front of an actress. Um, you know, I mean, we've all done it. No, we should be trivializing, trivializing this really. It's one we? of the perks of the job, isn't it? Yeah. No, it's, yeah, it's terrible. I mean, it's that some of the things he's alleged to have done are just like horrific and. You know, the fact that the Weinstein Company have uh, terminated his contract, the, the, the company he co-founded, that his brother is still a director of, um, it, it's just it's just amazing, really, that people can allegedly get away with doing that kind of thing for so long. And Harvey Weinstein himself is still, like, denying many of the accusations against him. Yeah, um, I mean, it's any time, any time something like this eventually comes out because it's always, it's always eventually come out. It never seems to come out as the event happens. So you've seen it in in British television, I suppose, mm. with um, you know Utree and the Savile Inquiry and all the presenters and everyone down the line, and you've seen it in British football as well with all the coaches um, abusing. Mm young boys yes. that we've had come out recently and it always comes out a lot later down the line it's always because these people um might not necessarily be rich and famous but they're in a position of power yeah um, this is like a so they, so so if you if you were to if you were to so when you're looking at and i suppose it all comes down to the type of jobs these people and so if you're a young actor or actress aspiring actor or actress or an aspiring footballer and you go again you know you report your uh, producer or your coach as somebody who's been abusing you, you run the risk of losing the opportunity to have that as your career. Because people, if the person doesn't get found guilty, and why would they? They've got enough money and enough power to hush it all up. And people are willing to help them hush it up, which we've seen in all these things before. Whether I mean, the Weinstein thing, I don't well, quite the, know. It's the Savile one in, is the biggest. The Savile one and the football one. All people have been helping been culpable in helping these people hush up the naughty things they've been doing you know the wrong things they've been doing it's all been helped to be hushed up so you so the people who it's happened to the victims have either thought what's the point of me doing it because it's all been hushed up no one's ever going to believe me when i'm saying that these people these big people are doing it or two if i do this i'm never going to be a footballer or i'm never going to be an actress or an actor because once I go against, you know, so and so, who's the biggest name in this this field, no one's yeah. going to touch me. And it's, it's that's probably the wrong phrasing for this. But, no one's going to. You know. <laughs> no, but I mean, I know what your point is, and I think this is one of the things that. Um, but then uh, it just takes one person to 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 come out and get taken seriously for everyone to do it. And it's that's that's not every, you a know. brave like I know it's, hor- it's horrible to call it brave and it's all one of these horrible cliches and everything. But I mean, it it takes a, an amount of um, fortitude to 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 do that, to step up and to kind of lead a charge against it. And sometimes 
it takes someone who is quite high profile or re- relatively high profile, like uh, Rose McGowan, who, um, you know, has worked on films that Harvey Weinstein has, di- uh, has um, produced, like Planet Terror and Death Proof. And she worked with many other actresses who came out about the, uh, the, the, came forward with accusations and evidence and worked with the New York Times to expose this. And, you know, fair fucking play to her. Because that takes a certain amount of, uh, like, like you say, it is a. I mean, it's horrible to say it, and I think it's, it, it shouldn't prevent anyone from stepping forward and reporting abuse because you know it is a crime. It's a, you know it is a crime and it should be reported to police and all that kind of thing. Um, but it is a risk. You do take that risk, and. I just have like the utmost admiration for people who can come forward and report stuff like that um, when they're in that kind of position, particularly in acting where there is this an abundance of actors all vying for the same position and you just single yourself out as being potentially a problem for other producers. And, you know, that again, I mean, it seems it may not be the case. It may be that if you do this, you're seen as... Um, uh, you you gain more respect, and other producers will see that and think that's the kind of person I, I want. Someone who's um, who has that integrity, and who's uh, prepared to whistleblow and stuff. Because you know, it may be the case that whoever's in charge doesn't know what's going on. Not saying that's the case here. I don't know the the specific facts of of all of these cases, but it, what it boils down to is it was great journalism by New York Times, some fantastically brave and, and um, uh, you know, people who I have huge admiration for have worked together to, to, to bring this to light. And the result is the person who's been accused of these um, crimes, let's call them what they are, you know, crimes, has lost their job because of it. And it doesn't matter that they're one of the most high-profile film producers working in Hollywood. Um, whoever they are, whatever they do, it's um, you know, it's yeah. right that they should be held accountable. Yes. Yes. Um, one final item on the news agenda is that it's London Film Festival at the moment, and we have sent Callum Petch down there to cover the event. Yeah, yeah, he's um, just tirelessly. Uh, writing, watching films, writing, watching films, writing, watching films. It's um, a force to behold because it, it's it's just... A, 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 again, I mean, I'm always so fucking jealous of Callum in that his writing is just... It just Every time I think I've written something, I th- I'm, I'm quite proud of that, I think. I've worked quite hard on this particular article. It's come out really well. Quite Quite pleased with it. And then I see something Callum's written. I'm like, what the fuck do I bother? Why do I bother when there's people like Callum writing in the world? Mm. I just write an article and then you remember that episode of Friends where Joey has to write a letter and he just uses a thesaurus and nope. changes all the words. He basically, tried to try and sound clever, he uses a thesaurus <laughs> to change all the, the words that he's written yeah. to sound more... Yeah, so basically I just do that. Uh, well, see, like there's, a, there's a, a, a principle which is called KISS for when you're writing, which is keep it simple, stupid. You know, just use simple, straightforward language. And that way people can understand what you're writing. And Callum, to be honest, that's what Callum does. He just writes in such a way that's... Um, 
Yeah, and, and I'm kind of gushing no, he, a little he, bit. He is, he is a very good writer. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And he's writing um, reviews of all the films that he's seen, including his written reviews of um, Loving Vincent, which I'll talk about soon, and uh, many, many others. He's written about the new Michael Haneke movie, which he was very displeased with, called Happy End. Um, he's written about, oh, God, Thoroughbreds he was quite pleased with. The Breadwinner as well was, was sort of his, one of his favourites so far. Um, but also around that, what you get with Callum's stuff on failcritics.com is uh, kind of more personal insight into the festival and how it's going for him as a writer at the festival. So I think you get that kind of ec- extra background information about yeah um, being a writer at a... You know, because he's kind of press. He's not there as a member of the public. He's, yeah, he's not just doing reviews, is he? He's... Covering the event. He's covering the event as press for Fail Critics, and we're going to do a yeah. podcast with him um, about this as well. So, similar to last year's Fail Critics um, podcast, where we did a special on the London Film Festival, we'll be doing that again, repeating that. Uh, so, yeah, so go to failcritics.com. You can read his diary entries there. Or there's this other website, Steve, called Set the Tape. Set the tape.com. Never heard of it. Never heard Never of it. Heard it's a brand it. new Never independent film, TV, music, and game review website. Oh, that sounds crap. It's good. It's really good. But <laughs> yeah. he is. I've heard there's some good writers over there. Yeah, one of those yeah. would be um, your Me. good self. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Callum Petch's writing just the reviews for Set the Tape as well. So you yeah. can read just the reviews on Set the Tape, or you can go to Fail Critics and read the kind of ins and outs of life as a film critic at a major international film festival. Yes. On Fail Critics. How did he ever get a press pass from Fail Critics for that? I know. It's, it literally says on his badge, Fail Critics. Didn't even cost him any money. No. Just got given to him. Yeah. Well, no, he applied for it. He had to apply for press. I, I've always thought, like... Well, yeah, the, but... The absolute, like... The, the goal should be for Fail Critics to get to Cannes Film Festival. But then... That would put you into so much debt, just mm. or blow all your savings or whatever. It's not really worth it. But London Film Festival, we can do. We've done the Glasgow Film Festival yeah. a number of times. We've done. Yeah. We've done London Film Festival a few times as well, no? So. And, yeah. and we're always at Fright Fest. And we're always at Fright Fest. Yeah. What we've been watching now, where we have a look at some of the films we've seen uh, in the last week. This week, there will be some new releases in there because we think that Blade Runner chat will take up pretty much the whole new release section of the podcast uh i have seen the mountain between us um which is the film starring idris elba and kate winslet and a dog yeah and the labrador from what i gather doesn't change weight or look particularly starved or anything at any point despite no, being but it, it might be the best actor in the film <laughs> Oh, no, that's dear. a bit. That's a bit over the top, but um, you certainly care more about the dog than you do about the humans. Isn't that always the case, though? Yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, I felt the same in Blade Runner for twenty forty nine for a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I was more concerned about what happened to the dog in when the thing crashed through. Anyway, yes. um, so in this film, there's a, a plane crash. Um, it's just like a small charter plane. You know, so it's there's not like loads and loads of passengers on it. It's just really um, Idris Elba's character and Kate Winslet's character, and there's a crash, 
and they get hurt and they're lost in the mountains and unlike alive they don't eat each other um, but they do have to try and get to safety because apparently the plane wasn't logged or something so no one knows who no one knows where they are um, so it's not like there's going to be a rescue plane coming out um, so they have to go and find help or they go you know they have to move from where they are they can't stay where they are in this snowy mountain um, where the plane has crashed and yeah I won't give away the ending to people um, I don't you know I'm not as scathing about it as what some of the reviews I've read on it are uh-huh. it's it's okay like it's when you when you start watching it it's a film that you don't want to turn off because you still want to know how the film resolves itself mm. but you're ultimately not that bothered like I'm annoyed that I put clothes on and took the effort to drive 15 <laughs> minutes to the cinema and then 15 minutes home afterwards to watch it like if I watched it on TV or a streaming service I'd have been quite happy I would have just at the end of it like okay that was alright on it uh-huh. I'm never going to watch it again that was fine you know you're not having much look at the cinema recently are you Mother the Mountain Between Us Blade no. we'll, we'll talk about Blade Runner later obviously but Kings, yeah. Kingsman I liked if that oh, was Kingsman, only a couple of weeks yeah. ago so so yeah really really giving my unlimited kind of good hammering at the moment anyway you you saw um, a film this week didn't you I did see a film yeah. and it was quite an astonishing film at that uh, I watched Loving Vincent as I mentioned a couple times already this week um now, you, you might have seen the trailer, or people listening might have seen the trailer for this, or some form of promotion, um, because it's been a project that's been quite long in the, um, in the making. Apparently, for the last kind of six to eight years, I think they said that they've been working on this, and uh, it's just the most mind-boggling type of animation that I've ever seen. They basically hand paint every single frame of the movie on canvas. Jeez. Now, yeah, to, to give I mean to give you to put that into perspective, the film um I'm not sure what the exact runtime is of the film, but according to IMDB it's one hour thirty four minutes. I'm not sure if that includes some of the credits which aren't hand painted or not, but um there you go. Hundred imagine over over ninety minutes of hand-painted frames, running at 12 frames per second, right? I watched a Q&A with um, one of the art... Well, there was the director and the producer, a couple of the actors, and one of the artists there called Sarah Wimperis, who um, was one of... Over, I think it was about 125 painters who worked on this film for two years. And she worked on 380 frames of the film took her five months to do 380 frames. Um, that equates to 31 seconds of the film. Just over 31 seconds of the film, that is. Right. Five months' work of... Um, the way that... Okay, so I haven't really explained it very well. So it's called Liv- Loving Vincent because it's about Vincent van Gogh. Or van Gogh, 
um, I don't like saying goch. I don't don't think it sounds right coming from my horrible mangled black country accent. But Vincent van Gogh, he uh, was the Dutch painter who uh, I don't need to explain. Do I cut his ear off? Um, commit suicide, that kind of thing. The film plays out as a mystery, kind of noir story. And we follow Armand Ruin. Ruin? Ruan. The, anyway, guy wearing a yellow jacket, who's played by Douglas Booth. Um, starts off, he's trying to deliver a letter to uh, Vincent van Gogh's brother. Um, and then that turns out to him trying to find another recipient for the letter and along his journey he sort of gets snippets of information about what happened to to van gogh and and the kind of cause of his suicide or the events leading to his suicide and things don't really add up you know pieces of information he gets from one source don't really match with information he gets from another source and he kind of spirals down this um, this, this this kind of hole towards uh, what would cause a man who six weeks earlier said he was in the best health he's ever been to then committing suicide. And so I just thought it was really just like fascinating story. Uh, just every character who's introduced in the film, their very first frame is the original painting by Van Gogh. And then the animators had to take that in, that initial frame and turn that into extended, like, just to move it along as normal narrative. And the way they did that is it's, um, uh, it, it's been rotoscoped. So do you know what rotoscoped is, Steve? If I said rotoscoped? Mm, no. So they filmed the actors doing their thing and then that's projected onto, um, well, in this case, uh, canvas. And then the painters film, uh, the painters fill that that picture in on a canvas. And then it moves forward a frame, and they scrub out the work that they've etched onto the onto that canvas. They, they they cross all that out, rub it all out, and then they start again on the next frame. And it moves a longer frame and they rub it all out and they start again and then it move a frame and rub it all. So it follows like... Um, like uh, Have you ever seen that old Lord of the Rings film? Not the Peter Jackson one. but The, the old... animated one. Yes. That's yeah. rotoscoped. But on right. that, they just, they just draw individual characters. Everything else is, you know, that's just film. Yeah. Yeah. And they just draw on all the weird magic fantasy stuff. Uh, that's right. that's a similar process. That's what they've kind of done with this. It's comparable to like stop motion, in that you know they move a bit and then they, instead of just taking a photo of a model that's been moved a bit, they actually physically have to paint a thing. It takes days to do each one. You know, it's just an absolutely mind-boggling project, and um, it, it yeah. So the directors are. Dorota Cobiella and Hugh Welchman. Um, the uh, actors in it, it's got a really good cast. Everyone puts in really just like a solid performance, um, particularly Douglas Booth as Armand. I, Armand, I thought he was um, I thought he was very good. Uh, it also has, um, what's your man from Game of Thrones? Jerome Flynn, Robson and Jerome's Jerome. 
He's in it as yeah, Dr. Why, 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 why would you say who the, the one from Game of Thrones rather than the one from Robson and Jerome? <laughs> uh, I mean, what, why, why do you go to Game of Thrones over Robson Because you would have thought of Jerome? Robson. You would have gone Robson. Yeah, yeah, it's right. yeah, you mean Robson, don't you? I don't mean Robson. You I must mean, mean Robson. No. no. What happened to Robson? He's not in Game of Thrones, is he? No, he, he was, though, wasn't he? Was he? Was he in a bit? I don't know. I thought they fell out. He put, well, it didn't necessarily mean they were both in the same scene. He did that fishing program for a while, and he was in. Oh, the... Robson's Green's Extreme Fishing. Yeah, and yeah. he was he was in. Um, what was that BBC thing with the werewolves and the vampire and the ghost who all lived in the same? Um, wasn't that called Being Human? Being Human. He was in that yeah. for a bit as well. Right. Well, let me just see now. I'm on his his Wikipedia, if he was in Game of Thrones, right. doesn't appear so. Okay. No. He was. He played himself in Robson Green Extreme Fishing, um, and he's handy. also and he's also done tell, Tales from the Coast with Robson Green and Robson Green's Coastal Lives. Oh, um, there you go. He ventured away from the sea. He's done the Flying Scotsman with Robson Green. So he's done some trains. Yeah. But yes, doesn't appear that he was in Game of Thrones okay. at any point. He wasn't being he wasn't being human though. You're right there. Yeah, I remember him um, in that. It was the werewolf dad bloke. Yeah, 2009, he did Robson Green's Wild Swimming Adventure. Sounds wild. Mm. Yes, but anyway, he's um, not in Loving Vincent, but uh, Jerome Flynn <laughs> is. And Jerome <laughs> Flynn is just brilliant. Really, really impressive performance. Um, kind of only really appears towards the end of the film. So the way that it works is um, you've got the present, which is... Uh, where you, you sort of follow Douglas Booth as he's on this sort of course to uncover more and more information about Vincent van Gogh's life. You've got flashbacks, which are black and white, um, which probably helped some of the animation, um, but also acts as kind of a mood thing uh, where you sort of meet all these, um, you see sort of, as people basically give you anecdotes about Vincent van Gogh's life or their experiences around Vincent van Gogh's arrival in this northern French town before he was in Paris and so on. Um, you uh, you see all that in black and white, but you you get you get all these brilliant performances out of that. Uh, John Sessions is in this. John Sessions was very good. Aidan Turner, Saoirse Ronan, um, uh, Helen McCrory is very good as Louise Chevalier. Um, I mean, basically, I think anybody who's uh, knows about Vincent van Gogh's life will probably discover something they didn't know before, because the film is meticulously researched. They spent years researching it before writing the script, before planning how to animate it. You know, it's um, uh, you know, they said that as they were researching this film. They were looking at the lives of all these people. They chose Armand Roulin as the, the main central kind of protagonist uh, because not much was written about his life. Whereas everybody else in this, um, they know lots and lots about because Vincent van Gogh painted them and therefore they were famous through, through his work and stuff. So, so there's an episode of Doctor Who, I think from when Matt Smith was the Doctor um, and, okay. he, and he goes back in time mm -hmm and he meets Vincent van Gogh because there's some alien knocking about there and causing some problems and 
so Vincent van Gogh, as we know, is a troubled person, and he, you know, he doubts how good his art is and all that. I suppose at the time, because didn't isn't isn't it true that no one really started buying his paintings and taking interest in him until after he died? Yeah. So basically, yeah. he um, only sold one painting whilst he was alive. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. And that was so, the other thing that was like about his death, about his suicide, was that he just sold that painting. He said he was in the best health he's ever been. Like he put it in a letter, and then um, Monet said that he was the new up and coming artist who's going to revolutionise everything, and then yeah. just shot himself. But anyway, yeah. carry on. So Doctor Who. Yeah. So, so yeah. So so at the end of the episode, the Doctor brings him forward in time just for a little period and takes him to a gallery which is curated by. a character played by Bill Nye who gives this wonderful eulogy of why Vincent van Gogh is the best painter of all time but I just thought what if he had just said what everyone thinks about first thing when they think of Vincent van Gogh oh everyone thinks about him for cutting off his ear yeah and you brought him forward in time you know and that's what that's everyone what knows him for because that's really although he is obviously this really well respected artist everyone you say Vincent van Gogh Someone says Vincent Van Gogh, do you think cut off his ear? First thing you think of, cut off his ear. And the film doesn't really have that kind of uh, that much in the way of focus on that period in his life. It's there. It just happens to be that um, the film's focused more about after that point. But yeah, you're right. I mean, that, I guess that is what he is famous for, as well as being an artist. Uh, but he's kind of the. Uh, sort of leading figure in the sort of modern art movement. And he also um, didn't start painting until he was 29, I think. And not many people knew that. He was only a painter for about eight years of his life. He just started painting when he was 28, to, as uh, recommended by this doctor to try and help with his um, uh, depression, you know. And uh, his manic bouts of melancholy, I think they called it. And so he just has um, uh, the doctor, who's played by Jerome of Robson and Jerome and Game of Thrones fame. He um, <laughs> he is fiercely jealous of Vincent van Gogh's talent because he always wanted to be an artist. And there was this guy who's just turned up, picked up a brush um, for the first time in his life and is just as amazing as Vincent van Gogh was. And so that also plays into this whole sort of kind of uh, whodunit story about was he murdered? You know, could he have been shot by somebody else? What happened to his canvas and his, you know, well, his easel and his his paints and all, and all of that stuff? Where, why wasn't that ever recovered? And, you know, where was the gun that he used to shoot himself? Was he shot by someone else was he shot by Monet was he sh there's a conspiracy about whether he was just shot by a group of kids who were tormenting him who lived in the sort of little French village where he was um this really interesting story like the, all this like background that it goes into I just find it fascinating I'm a complete like novice when it comes to Van Gogh's work I could look at one and think that kind of looks like something Van Gogh painted but I couldn't tell you what it was called where it was done um anything like that so uh, yeah, it's just I just thought it was it was amazing. I know that um, some people haven't quite loved it, and I can understand why. I mean, it paints like a suicide as a film noir, which is 
Uh, again, as Callum mentioned earlier in his, his uh, London Film Festival stuff touched on, that's kind of a problematic thing to try and treat someone's suicide as well. They they must have been, you know, murdered. Could they have been? Um, why why would they have have done this? How, you know, it's kind of this whole thing about well. It's again showing that we don't really know how depression works. Depression's different for everybody. Blah 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 blah. I kind of understand, um, or at least I think I get a grasp of why people are upset by that particular sort of angle. But I just thought, as a story, as a narrative, the way it's told worked perfectly. Um, it was it was just so beautiful to watch. So I, if you have the opportunity to see this in the cinema. Do it. It's shot in the old sort of Hollywood style frame. Uh, it's not in widescreen because it's it's basically trying to match as close as they could get it to the size of the canvas that, um, you know, Van Gogh painted on. Um, so it's yeah. in that kind of sort of boxy uh, style. But yeah, it just looks amazing. Looks great. Uh, stories told really well. Brilliant performances. Um, it's so unlike anything else you will ever see in your life so i pl- i forked out 30 quid to go and watch this um with a q and a at the cinema i forgot just how bloody expensive cinema tickets are when you haven't got a cineworld unlimited card mm. it was uh, a, 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 I mean, a the, shock. The, just just a standard screening at cineworld is 10 pounds 20 now yeah that's obviously if you don't go on a, a meerkat thursday or something whatever they do now <laughs> Yeah. Um, no, yeah, this like was ten, ten pound twenty for just a standard, non three D. Yeah. What, you know, and you just think I got one pound fifty off with a student ticket, and yeah. that one pound fifty was added back on by a booking fee. So what was the fucking point of that? But <laughs> you know. But anyway, it, it was worth it. I'm happy. I, 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 you know, you know, I'd pay fifteen quid to go and watch a um, a comedian. I'd pay fifteen quid to go and watch. You know, a theatre performance. Uh, this is. A, would you a pay fifteen quid to go and watch Birmingham City at the moment? No, no, I would not pay fifteen quid <laughs> no. to go and watch Birmingham City. Um, no, uh, <laughs> but you know, I mean, it's just one of those experiences. You won't, you won't get that kind of experience again. Um, although, actually, in that Q and A, one of the things that uh, one of the questions that was asked of uh, Hugh Welchman, who was there. He um, was asked, would you do this again, this style for anything else? And he was like, yes. Yes, I would. Straight away. So maybe we will get that experience again. But for this, this is just, um, it could potentially be one of a kind. So do go and see it. And even if you don't like the story so much, um, you can't not be impressed by the animation. It's phenomenal. Our new release this week to review is Blade Runner 2049, the sequel to uh, Blade Runner, obviously, which was released 35-ish years ago. Um, This one um, stars Ryan Gosling as K, a Blade Runner, hunting down replicants to retire them. Uh, much as um, Harrison Ford Deckard did in the first film. Probably before we talk about 2049, we should talk about the original Blade Runner, Owen. Mm. Um, I, again, watched it for the second or third time earlier this week, 
uh, or, or late last week before watching the sequel. Um, I like it. I think it's good sci-fi. I don't get why people revere it so highly as this kind of amazing... You know, people, the way people talk about it as this kind of epic, not just sci-fi film, just sort of... People seem to, to talk about it as one of the greatest films of all time. I just don't get it. You, okay, that's... And people probably say, that's just Steve, he's thick, he doesn't understand no, films think... like we all do. No. I just think, no, I don't get it. I like, you know, I like it, it's good, it looks fantastic. Anyone who, anyone who the, says the, anything the, like that is just a massive cunt, so I wouldn't pay them any attention. The... But it, it, it looks fantastic, both both the original and Blade Runner 2049. Yeah, yes. I think I think they look amazing, um, but yeah, I just I don't get why Blade Runner is thought of as this this you know up there with the best films of all time. Because it is one of the best films of all time. Steve. But why is it? No I'm one's so much smarter me, than you. No one's <laughs> ever ever been able to tell me why it is. Oh man, okay. <laughs> I mean, that is a huge conversation. We had this... I did review it on the podcast a f- few months back. And I tried to explain then, I think, why um, it's such a, a, an amazing, revolutionary movie. It was interesting, though, that it, when it came out, it wasn't reviewed that way. When it came out, the reception to it was very much of an underwhelmed audience, say, sort of shrugging their shoulders, going, well... Yeah, it's just a film noir with some sci-fi in it. And that kind of is what it is. It is just a, sci- a film noir with sci-fi in it. But I think the themes that it, it covers, um, and in terms of the way it's shot, and um, the fact that there's just not... Re- you don't really get films like that that do what it does and do it to the same standard, uh, that it stands out so much. And I think... I don't really... I mean, I could, you can talk about all the the sort of underlying themes to it. There's so, like, um, you know, Rutger Hauer, uh, who plays Roy Batty. And Roy Batty, you know, Mad King. Roy is in French for for, for King. Roy, Roy Batty, Batty does mad. sound like a Coronation Street character. <laughs> yeah, he does a bit, I suppose. But, you know, he's like the um, representative of the, uh, the Ubermensch the Superman, the next level of man, you know, from Nietzsche, mm. God is dead. The next thing that's happening will be the, the Superman. And that's kind of what he is. He's the next evolution of us. And um, we're threatened by him. You know, we created him, but actually, you know, it's very Promethean. We created him. We, we, as man, created a replicant that was better than us. And now we need to kill him. He's stronger than us. Evidently, he's smarter than us. Um, uh, but towards the end, this is... I don't really mind spoiling Blade Runner slightly. Um, you know, if you're listening... It's, it's, to 30, the, it's 35 years old. You yeah. should, if you're going to see it, you've seen it. Yeah, 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 exactly. So at the end of it, you know, Roy Batty ends up uh, after a chase scene through a sort of a, a, an abandoned old building uh, in an LA. He... Um, uh, chases um, Deckard around and uh, ends up kind of changing his opinion. You know, he realises, like, the value of life as he's just about to lose his own. 
you know, you know the whole memories, for, you know, tears in the rain, that whole monologue speech bit. Which is, a, which is a great monologue, admittedly. Yeah, and apparently, you know, it's a very well-known bit of trivia now, but he, he just ad-libbed that. He made that up. That wasn't in the script. That was Rutger Heller, um, you know, on his own. But he, um, you know, he, 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 you know, he's stigmated because he has holes in his hands, and then at the end, he saves Deckard instead of saving himself. You know, he knows he's gonna die. Deckard could die, but he chooses to save Deckard, and in doing so, he redeems Deckard, and thus, you know, it's a whole Jesus thing as well. You know, there's all these different themes that that, that go through. Deckard again, Deckard like Descartes. I think, therefore, I am. Is Deckard a replicant? Is he one of these Nexus models, or is he a human? Well, we know for you if you've watched the theatrical cut as you've done, very ambiguous. We don't know what he is. Uh, you know, it's left kind of open. Um, if you watch the, um, you know, all the all you get at the end of the theatrical version is him driving off in a very film noir style with uh, um, Rachel in the car with him, and it's like, oh, that's a happy ending. Whereas. You know, again, for film noirs, that was the thing about film noirs. They had endings tacked on by the studios, often shot by people who weren't directors of the movies that, you know, they would film their stuff and the the studio would go, you know what, needs a happy ending. We'll go and reshoot yeah. our own ending and put that on the end there for you, you know, in a very studio sort of fashion. And again, Blade Runner has, the original cut has that, but whereas the final cut has the whole unicorn um, element to it. So it's all about looking, you know, the very first scenes are all through Deckard's eyes or somebody's eyes as you see the reflection of the destruction of society and this dystopian world. And so through that, you can sort of, you know, you infer that it's about the eyes, it's about looking, eyes are the windows to the soul, all that business. You know, the Voigtkampf test is about testing the reaction by scanning someone's eyes and the patterns. Um... And again, you know, it's brought up in Blade Runner 2049, you know, does he have a soul? Does Ryan Gosling, as a replicant, have a soul? And uh, that's like the the key question, right? And so in the in the original Blade Runner, um, like I say, it's all through the eyes, it's all through the eyes. Deckard is about looking. There's a scene people hate in the original film, which is where he's just, you know, doing the typical kind of sci-fi scene where he's zooming in on something and then he, he pans and then he zooms in a bit more. And then he pans a bit. And then he zooms in a bit more on this thing that he's looking at and he pans a bit. It's, again, it's all about looking. It's about he's observing. It's about he's thinking. And if he's thinking independently, does that mean that he's alive? Well, if you're Deckard, a.k.a. Deckard, then you think, therefore, you are. So he, whether he's a replicant or not, he is alive. Um, but he also has a dream. And one of the things we know about Blade Runner is people have pre-programmed dreams. And what does he dream about? He dreams about a unicorn, a mythical creature, right? That's what he dreams about. It's not a real thing. It's a fake, a mythical being. So that's not real. So is Deckard real? Well, no, because he dreams about a unicorn. And the other Blade Runner, the other detective, he knows what Deckard dreams about because he leaves him a tinfoil, uh, an origami um, unicorn outside of his hat, uh, flat. So therefore, he knows what what Deckard's dreaming about, despite Deckard not talking about it. Ergo, Deckard is a replicant. We know that. It's different in Blade Runner twenty forty nine. They go for a different take on that. 
And I think it's quite an interesting thing. So for, for all these different things, I think there's so much about Blade Runner that you can um, infer, that you can understand, that you can observe, and um, or you can watch it just as a dystopian sci-fi detective noir film and still get a lot out of it. Like you said you've done. You don't dislike it, do you? You like no, Blade I don't dislike. I don't dislike Blade Runner. I like Blade Runner. I just don't see why everyone uh, rates it as highly as what yeah. they do. Well, I, I, I'd love it. And that's. I think that um, one of the things I was worried about with Blade Runner 2049 is why bother with a sequel? We know that Deckard is a replicant. If we've seen the theatrical cut, which is the direct, you know, similar to the director's cut, which also has the unicorn scene in it, and therefore proves Deckard is the replicant. Um, there, you know, I mean, why why do we need to return to this world? Why bother going back? Why have Ryan Gosling as another Blade Runner? What else can we get from this story that we didn't get in Ridley Scott's version? And do you think you got more from Blade Runner 2049 than you got from no. the original? No, I don't think so either. No. It's a very no. pretty I film. Mean, it's I'll, a very good uh, film, but it's not It's uh, not saying I, anything. I don't, I don't think it's very good at all. You didn't um, like it? I, no. Okay, um, that's fine. What, I mean, what was uh, it was too long. Mm-hmm. It was too boring. I didn't think actually that much really happened, and I don't like Ryan Gosling. Yeah, I'm seeing this comment a lot lately. What he just what is all... he just had the, he just had the same expression on his face the whole time, except one time where he got a little bit shouty, <laughs> like frustrated, and went ah. Other than that, you know, I, he seems like a, a perfectly nice person. When I see him in interviews and everything, he seems quite charming, and he he talks yeah. well. He comes across well. But as an actor, the film I see him in, he just seems to not do a lot and have the same look on his face Well, that's... and it's a bit of a smug look he just looks <laughs> smug yeah I think that look is the, it's the same uh, in Blade Runner 2049 as in perhaps Drive as it doesn't matter it doesn't, ma- it doesn't matter if he's, he's, he's happy or angry or so. he's just got that same look on his face and it's not like he's playing I know he's playing a replicant but it's not like he's playing someone who's emotionless but the scenes in this film right so I'm thinking specifically about um, there's a there's a moment in it where he's um, just told point blankedly, you know, blankedly he's he's got no soul. You don't, but you don't have a soul. And I think there's a there's a just a, a kind of the a point little... where I look with the point where I looked at him and went, yeah, you're right. <laughs> you just thought, yeah, that's true. Yeah. No, when Robin, it's Robin Wright who's his boss, right? Who's the lieutenant, and she just kind of says, "Well, you don't have a soul," and he just has this glance, this kind of look, and there's an acknowledgement there that I don't have a soul, but it's kind of pained. I think it was a really good performance. I really do like Ryan Gosling. He's one of my favourite actors. Work. I don't know why people suddenly start saying he's a charisma vacuum and all these these phrases about him that I just don't see, I don't get, because I think he does a lot by doing not very much. But also, then you watch him in something like The Nice Guys, um, uh, where he's just magnificent, a very good comedic actor. I liked him in La La Land. I wasn't very impressed with La La Land, but I did like Ryan Gosling in it. Oh, I thought La La Land was crap. Yeah, I mean... It's... Just absolute tripe. I thought it was and okay. I think, it only, I think it only got the success it got because 
it was it was in some ways like gravity in so much that it was different yeah I did. It, 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 it was it was it wasn't a bad like gravity's not a great film by any means in the way of of sci-fi films it's not great at all the story the plot's pretty thin and the acting's not great but it looks amazing especially if you see it in IMAX or in 3D it's one of the only films that seems to be purposely made for 3D and looks half decent in it and if you see it in IMAX it just looks mm. unbelievable but I'd have rather seen a documentary about space made in that way sure and La La Land you know how many big budget all singing all dancing musicals are there with two massive stars as the leads it it's probably an achievement to make a film like that. But it's still crap. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was okay at the time. I was, I mean, I don't really like musicals anyway, but I suffered through the very few musical scenes in that film. Um, but the, you know, the longer time gets from it, the less kind it is. And I think actually that's something I said on Twitter about Blade Runner twenty forty nine. I think mm. the the more distance we have from this film. I think, again, this is quite controversial. I think this is the same for most Denis Villeneuve's yeah. films. The longer we get, you know, the further away we get from them, the less fondly they'll be remembered, I think. Uh, there's the just Artist something... is another film like the ones I mentioned because it's different. It's done in black and white and it's not badly made. And it's a silent and film got... and it's gimmicky yeah. and stuff. Yeah, but uh, I watched that again the other... When did I watch that? I think I might watch that after watching La La Land because I said The Artist was better than La La Land. And then I watched um, The Artist again and thought it was utter shit. I couldn't believe that I'd previously rated it so highly. But mm. anyway, yeah, I think with, with um, um, Ryan Gosling in this as Kay, uh, the Blade Runner, I thought he was uh, very good. And uh, the, put, the, the, the fact people have slated him so much is, I do find, quite puzzling. One person I... Well, there's two people in this I didn't really think were particularly great. I thought Jared Leto... Uh, was he in it a few scenes? Mm. As... I didn't. I didn't see the point of his character at all. No, I mean it's completely unnecessary. He just provide provides the motive for a villain, really. And again, it's like one of the. the, the and you the don't. And you don't really need that anyway. You don't need. He doesn't. He's not needed in the film. And the way he's portrayed in the first scene is just some kind of mysterious character. Mm. I mean, obviously explained in the in the prologue kind of who he is but it's like you know who is he what is a what what's he about what's you know what's his whole deal what's up with him what's happened to him and you think right the film might expand on that he's literally in like one more scene and you think well what's the point what is the point of you yeah i mean if you think about the original um i read a review by um nicholas lay on set the tape about blade runner 2049 one of the things he said is Think, think about Blade Runner, right? And we've talked about it here on the podcast. What makes that stand out so much like a sore thumb from this one? It's Roy Batty, isn't it? It's Rutger Hauer. Mm. He provides the perfect antithesis for um, uh, Harrison Ford as Deckard. Yeah. You know, they're, they're the same but opposites kind of thing. You know, it's, a, it's the typical convention of... Anyway, right, but I don't need to go into all that again. But like, this is um, this doesn't have that uh, dichotomy between Kay and anybody. Uh, there's just no. I th- I just think that 
Gerard Leto could have been that, but again, he was more obsessed with um, Harrison Ford. I thought as a, it, as a kind of mystery story, it kept me hooked. I thought the middle part of the film, again, like Nick has, has said in his review, you know, Nick's been on this podcast before. He's a very intelligent chap when he talks, about, well, in general anyway, but I think, but particularly so when he talks about movies, because you can, you can spot these kind of things. And you think like the middle part of this movie is where all of the, it's just where everything is that's worth bothering with, with Blade Runner 2049. All the, the kind of, um, everything in the first act establishes stuff. Everything in the second act is just brilliant. Start to finish, it's just like everything from, you know, meeting Harrison Ford to uh, the kind of uncovering of this conspiracy, this cover-up for these adopted kids. And the kind of path it leads you down was very clever because it makes you think you're clever for working out who Ryan Gosling's character is. And then that's not necessarily the truth, you know. It really does kind of just suddenly drop on you that, oh, it's just, it's made me think that I'm being clever by working it out. And I'm not, because I've got it wrong. And I just thought that was a very, you know, the, the, the credit there has to go to, to the writers. And Hampton Fancher, Michael Green, um, uh, worked on the, the screenplay for this. And uh, Hampton Fancher, of course, was also um, one of the writers on the original uh, adaptation of Philip K. Dick's novel. So, again, credit to the writers. I thought it was very well paced. Um, some of the actors that come in and out of it, Dave Bautista is in the very first scene uh, as the farmer farming protein yeah. maggot things. I liked his scene in that. I thought that was very good. Yeah, he surprised me at how good and versatile an actor he actually can be. Yeah, he basically begged... considering he's a wrestler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He begged to get into this film apparently, and they weren't they weren't going to let him in because he was. Um, too young for the role. They wanted someone older. He, he didn't look young, did he? No, they made, they had to make him look older, apparently. So he's always being told he's too old for a part, and then he went to try and get into Blade Runner, and they said he was too young. So, But what did you think about Harrison Ford? That's where I, I was going to go with this. this I thought it was Harrison Ford. He was Harrison Ford. Yeah. yeah. I wonder what character he's bringing back next. Yeah, well, that's Cause true. Because he, because he's done Indiana Jones and uh, Han Solo, and obviously now Deckard. Deckard. I mean, who else can he bring back? Um, he could be the president again. Yeah. Was it in the... Air Force? In Air Force Two. Uh, yeah, I suppose he yeah. could. Yeah. Was he in the Fugitive? I mean, he could do that again. Even Fugitivia. Yeah. Even Fugitivia. Yeah. yeah. You can coin that. Um... I don't think they're gonna take that away from you. No, <laughs> I, there wasn't even any need for Deckard to be in this film. Um, no, I disagree. You could have, you could have made you. I think you could have made it Deckardless, and it wouldn't have made it any worse. I think it had to. I mean, it doesn't resolve anything, does it? No, nothing, nothing that was in the first film um, is answered. You know, any of the open questions, they're still open by the end of this film, really. It's just a story about um, the guy thirty years on, really. Yeah, and it it it, it even teases itself up for a sequel, which annoyed me. Yeah, a bit open at the end there. Because, and because 
Yeah, I, and I just can't see how a sequel for this one could be made to be interesting. Well, the thing is, it's... like, do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which is the original Philip K. <coughs> Philip K. Dick book, um, that has sequels. You know, the novel has sequels. Yeah. I think some of which weren't even written by Philip K. Dick. So, I mean, there is kind of extra story there, but whether they use it... I mean, I haven't read them. I remember my brother... Um, both me and my brother read the original novel, and he was taught, he read, he went on and read the sequels as well, uh, and his opinion was they're a load of shit. <laughs> so, I mean, maybe they don't want to use that as their source material, but um, yeah, yeah. No, I think they did have to bring Deckard in. I think it was integral to the whole Blade Runner thing that he was there, uh, and again, he could have provided that um, you know the kind of uh, mirroring of. Uh, Ryan Gosling's character, and they didn't even go down that angle. So, yeah. I mean, it, again, it seems like I'm down on it. I liked it. I came out of that film thinking, I thought that as far as sort of cerebral, intelligent, hard sci fi goes, that's about as good as we're going to see in the sort of modern era. I can't see. I mean, I liked it more than Arrival, Denis Villeneuve's film from um, last year, which loads of people loved. And again, as time went on, I liked that film less and less the more I thought about it. Uh, same, same, similar to Sicario, although that's not really a sci-fi. Um, but uh, no, I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I liked it a lot. I liked it a lot. I would happily watch it again. In fact, I will watch it again. Whether I go and watch it again in the cinema, despite the just like incredible cinematography as well by the way which we haven't even mentioned yet you know the way this this film looked oh yeah well, i said earlier both this and blade run they look amazing well yeah i mean this has roger deakins fantastic. as the cinematographer mm. he just just does a it it's just a, a, a cr- incredible job isn't it it just uh yeah it just blows you away every but every I, always, shot. I always kind of i always kind of like a film when it's like it's sci-fi, but it's like a a used future or used, you know. Yeah. Because sci-fi, quite a lot, everything looks brand new and pristine and shiny white. Uh, you know, from from Star Wars where they're going to junk planets and but you know bang banged up spaceships to to Blade Runner where it's nothing nothing looks new, everything looks lived in and used and dirty and just like yeah. the sort of lower class of people use this kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah, I I think that um it's interesting because when you think about the times that some of these were written. If you if you watch some 50s sci-fi, uh it's it glamorizes science fiction. Mm. You know, oh it's just, it's the future, you know. Of course it's going to be better because today is so shit, you know. We we're, we're heading to a a better place in almost literally in terms of these people who yeah. shoot off onto other planets on rocket ships, but also in terms of like where humanity is heading. We've got all these new technologies. It's great. Ignore the fact that there's an impending threat of the Cold War. Um, whereas, you know, as time went on into like specifically the eighties, if you think of Blade Runner and you think, yeah, this is just, a, we live in a shit capitalist society where everyone is out to do each other over to get ahead. And, you know, the world that these science fiction characters live in reflects that. You think of Paul Verhoeven, even, you know, with Robocop. Um, 
and Blade Runner and, you know, crime is rampant. It's just an absolute shit heap of a society that we live in. And that was reflected in that. And you look at now, some of the sci-fis, like um, um, some of them that look like amazing, such as, give me a name, Steve, of a sci- Oblivion, the Tom Cruise film. Mm. Everything looked like it was made by Apple. Because that yeah. reflects what we, we have now. Minimalism. And, you know, it's um, you don't need to have, uh, you know, tons of... There's not really such a thing as mechanical. You know, it's all electronic. It's all, like, um, perfect and uh, a projection of how we want to see ourselves. And I think that the other films... uh, Ghost in the Shell is another one, came out this year, right? Even that, which is portraying a world where there's organised crime, where uh, it's meant to be the slums, still looks kind of pristine. You know, even that, there's still, like, high society who are living really Mm. well. Whereas Blade Runner is a return to that down in the dirt, living with the scum kind of... um, People just wear just horrible clothes. It's raining all the time. Um, if you're not being beaten up or shit on, you're being uh, sold sex and stuff. It's just grimy. It's horrible. And it's just, they've made it look amazing. And I think mm. uh, it, it's very cinematic, both in terms of the narrative and in terms of the, the look. Yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't really criticise it too much. I, I know I said like I have earlier on, and that's because I don't think it's perfect. And I, again, I just think when we get, I think it's missing certain elements. And when we get to say fifteen years time, I don't think it's going to be remembered as fondly as the original. The original will still be at the forefront of people's thoughts when they talk about sci-fi. This probably won't, mm. but it's still yeah. a very good film. Still very good. Right, just before we go then, some recommendations. I'm going to go with uh, set your recorder box for this one because it's <laughs> 10 to 1 on Friday uh, Well, morning, technically. Um, and that is on ITV4. Um, sorry, 5 to 2 it's on in the morning. And that is... Uh, oh no, sorry, my apologies. It is on at 10 to 1. It's one of them weird Do you want to do that I again? <laughs> No, no, because it's one of them weird ones where ITV4 stick a 10-minute news bulletin and halfway through uh, the film. right. Even though it's going to be at like 10 to 2 in the morning and no one gives a fuck what's going on in the world <laughs> at that time. Uh, but though, it is the road. Oh, grim. Um, yeah, so if you've had a few beers and you've come back in from the pub um, and you're contemplating the big questions in life, stick the road on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Great, great film. Not one to cheer you up, though. No, quite no. the opposite. Yeah. Um, what are you recommending, um, Owen? I've got two recommendations to, to kind of... But basically because one of them, I don't know whether people will take up anyway, but The Exorcist Season 2 starts on the Sci-Fi Channel on Wednesday this week. Yeah. And it'll be repeated throughout the week, probably on Sci-Fi's catch-up service thing. Um, the first series was one of the best shows of last year. Right. It kind of flew under the radar, I think, as the first couple of episodes were a little bit iffy. Mm. And then it suddenly gained this momentum. And you understood yeah. the narrative. You know, you understood who these characters were then. 
and how it fits into the Exorcist world. I just thought it was right. amazing. Um, it was just brilliant TV. Season okay. two's on. But also, if you want a film to watch, I seem to recommend it every time it's on TV. But on ITV on Sunday at 20 to midnight is uh, The Last Boy Scout with uh, Bruce Willis as a PI and Damon Wayans as a pro footballer investigating the murder of his girlfriend, who's Halle Berry. But it's directed by Tony Scott, who's, of course, Ridley Scott's brother, or was Ridley Scott's brother, who um, Ridley Scott, of course, have we mentioned already, directed Blade Runner. So there's your little tie-in. Yeah. And written by Shane Black, who wrote The Nice Guys, which Ryan Gosling was in, and I would also recommend people check out. There you go. So, there you go. Nice um, and cyclical. Did you see my tweet yesterday after I left the cinema about watching Blade Runner? Um, remind me what was in it. Basically, I got in the car and I was driving home and I listened to Radio 4 at times. And you know how Radio 4 have a book at bedtime? Yeah. Right, so that was on when I was driving home. Uh-huh. That, like, starting. I didn't I didn't know it was coming on, but it came on. Do you know what that book at bedtime was? Uh, Fucking Omen. Oof. How are you getting to bed watch listening to that? That's That was on BBC uh, Radio 4? Yeah. Oh, uh, well, that's, why isn't that your recommendation this week? I'm doing that. I'm going to get that and listen to I it. Swear I, was, I swear I didn't get that wrong. Uh, I was listening. Yeah. And the book at bedtime was The Omen. I thought, how are you going to get to sleep? <laughs> they did. They, what an awful choice. They did these kind of audio plays um, uh, last year around this time for uh, Halloween where they did uh, The Stone Tapes, which is great, which was by uh, directed by Peter Strickland, had Olivia Colman and Julian Barrett in it. Very, very good, and it was all about the use of sound. If it's still yeah. available, I'd recommend tre- checking that out on yeah. iPlayer. Yeah, they're, they're doing the Omen as book at bedtime. That should be the book at 2 o'clock in the afternoon when it's bright and sunny and the curtains are wide open. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I watched this week, I've watched the two Exorcist prequels, um, the films, and they are a load of shit. And so, yeah, I need a proper good horror. The Omen is a proper good horror. But I've never read the book, nor heard the audio book. So, yeah, forget all those two recommendations I gave, I've just given out. Forget The Exorcist, forget The uh, the Last Boy Scout. I think that's a quality recommendation. Yeah, um... Yeah, get on, get on iPlayer. It's on. I'm just looking now. It is on iPlayer. The episodes they've done. It's culminating on Friday the thirteenth. Typically, they're ending it on Friday. But nice. Yeah, I just thought it was a bit of a strange choice to have as the book at bedtime. <laughs> <laughs> like, just absolutely freak you out if you're trying to sleep. Yeah, sleep well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, next week we'll be back with um, London Film Festival podcast special with Callum Petch. We will. <laughs> The Failed Critics Podcast is presented by Steve Norman and Owen Hughes with contributions from different guests every week with original music provided by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com from the track The Bandit remixed by James Yule who you can find at jamesyule.com You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Failed Critics on iTunes and all good podcast apps or you can check us out at failedcritics.com If you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave a rating or a review and why not check out our sister podcasts Character Unlock and Field and Mullinger's Underground Nights from the failed media network of podcasts. Thanks for listening.